Coming up on today's show, former UCP MLA Drew Barnes is floating the prospect of a new party in Alberta. We'll get some details from him. Jane Philpott, the former Minister of Health for our federal government, says, you know what, throwing money at our healthcare system has been tried over and over again, and it doesn't work. And this is so cool. Canadian soldiers are now in charge of guarding Queen Elizabeth II in Britain. Yesterday, we were talking about Drew Barnes floating the idea of forming a new political party in Alberta. This one focused on issues that are important to rural Albertans. And for many of you, and for me, as we talked about it yesterday, sounded a little familiar. Seemed like the usual fracturing of Canada's various conservative movements, which historically has been counterproductive to getting conservatives elected, right? We even saw it in the last federal election. I've spoken with conservative MPs who say the PPC really tripped them up. And that's probably why they lost some of the seats. So is this different this time around? If so, how is it different? So Drew Barnes is joining us to tell us some of the details about what he's thinking about here. Uh, Mr. Barnes, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Good morning, Jay. How far down the road are you? I mean, I know this was just something that you sort of put out, you know, a letter. And uh, have you done any work on this? Is this something that people should have on the radar? Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. I've been talking to lots of Albertans, uh, particularly rural Albertans, helping understand why it's so important for them to vote yes to end equalization. And, Shay, I kept hearing from, from hundreds of, of Albertans that they feel that, that the UCP government, that Jason Kenney doesn't represent them, doesn't share their values, doesn't hear their ideas, and uh, they're, they're scared silly of a return to an NDP government. So they, they, they want to talk about their options. They want to talk about, about other ways to, uh, you know, promote economic freedom, promote individual opportunity and self-reliance. And, hey, I'm grateful that uh, I'm one of 87 Albertans paid to uh, speak up on behalf of Albertans and, and float these ideas. Now, you talk about uh, fearing a return of an NDP government in Alberta, and I think you're right, nothing unites Conservatives like uh, the words Premier Rachel Notley. Um, yeah. But this kind of move to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, she would love, because this would once again take the conservative votes, we just united the right, and now put them into two separate parties, making it easier for her to win. Am I wrong? How is this one different? Well, I think you're wrong, because like we have to look at where we're at today, and today all the polls are showing it's going to be Premier Rachel Notley. Jason Kenney has not met expectations, he's, he's not delivered the unified UCP party that... Uh, you know, so many of us had hoped for that that showed and, and shared some of our values, at least. So a lot of uh, rural Albertans are telling me two things. First of all, what do we got to lose when it when it uh, not least so far ahead in the polls anyway? And secondly, Shay, if you don't vote for what you want, you'll never get it. And, and you know, especially when it comes to more economic freedom, smaller government, hey, particularly when it comes to uh, trying to redefine our, our deal with Ottawa and Confederations, more than ever, Albertans are willing to, to step up and, and push to take the risk to uh, fight for their families and, co- and communities, and uh, this is part of the discussion. Um, when we take a look at this, uh, I think we've got 41 ridings out of 87 in the province, I believe, are rural. Uh, now, I imagine you'll run candidates in all, in all ridings, ultimately, if this comes to fruition. But when you're basically basing this on the wishes of 41 ridings out of, four, of 87, uh, you're, you're sort of kneecapping yourself to even have a chance at forming a majority government in this province. Well, you know, of course, with 87, majority be 44, but it's all about a coalition after. It's all about the balance of power. Shay, let's not forget that three Greens in British Columbia completely stopped the Trans Mountain Pipeline, completely handcuffed uh, Alberta oil and gas, and that, the pipeline is still not flowing today. 
So, um, you know, sometimes the balance of power, sometimes getting those those important values and ideas like economic freedom and individual opportunity out there are, are worth the risk. You know, she, I've even had uh, big metro conservatives call me and say, hey, this sounds like a good idea. Maybe, uh, you know, we should look at uh, a, a sister party in, in, in the big cities. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful that uh, just in the two days since we, we put it out there, it's hundreds of Albertans have reached out to say, hey, I like this. Have you thought of that? You know, this may not work. And this, you know, call them the discussion paper. This has done exactly what it was supposed to do. It's, it's got Albertans talking about our future, our economic freedom and our values. You know, I think you're right in saying that a lot of Conservatives are very disillusioned with Jason Kenney's performance in the UCP government. I mean, we saw the approval rating at 22% this week, which is, boy, I mean, that's about as bad as it gets in this country. Um, but what happened, Drew, to political leaders saying, you know what, we're going to lead for all Albertans. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to focus on even the people who didn't vote for us. We're still your premier. We're still your government. We're still going to represent your interests. Are we beyond that now? Are we going to fracture this into small little base groups and try and, you know, handle it that way? Can't we have a leader who says, you know what, we can walk and chew gum. We can lead for all Albertans. Well, you know, we have to look at the situation we're in now. And, and six months of polls showing the NDP far ahead of the UCP. Uh, Jason Kenney doing everything he can to kick his leadership review down the road, down the road, uh, when Albertans want a voice. Of course, uh, you know, I was I was ejected from the UCP caucus, apparently, for, for speaking up with what my constituents uh believed in what they wanted uh, to be discussed and uh, so when change doesn't happen when people's voices aren't heard um, you know people will will push for change and Shay Albertans have done it countless countless times you know there's no 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 problems like Alberta for for making things happen so uh, I you know we're at 16 17 months before the next election uh, and as you were saying you know uh, Jason Kenney not meeting expectations he's he's polling in popularity in Alberta, less than Justin Trudeau is, which is amazing. He's, he's back to Allison Redford level, yes. and still we don't see change. And uh, so this is this is part of the process of, of sticking up. And uh, again, I'm grateful to to be one of 87 MLAs with the opportunity to speak up for for 4.4 million Albertans. And I guess the question, if you're sticking up for 4.4 million Albertans, why are you defining this as a party based on rural values? It, it seems to me to be that toxic us versus them. Um, you know, it, we're going to get, we're going to take our support from the rural base and, you know, because they're mad at the cities and they're mad at Ottawa. I mean, when you talk about Albertan values, I don't know if there's really that many differences between rural and urban Albertans. Sure, there are some, you know, specific issues, but when, you know, you're talking about economic um, freedom and self-sufficiency and a fair deal. I think those apply equally, whether you're rural or urban. Why do you want to make that split? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, maybe it comes from from the area I represent, Cypress Medicine Hat, uh, you know, southeastern corner of my constituency touches Saskatchewan and Montana. Uh, you know, we're, we're comprised of, of, of strong Alberta families and communities, but Albertans that, that share those values of economic freedom and individual opportunity. Um, you know, the carbon tax comes to mind. Uh, you know, we've talked many, many times about how the carbon tax has a tendency to... Uh, 
you know, to affect rural communities more because of the cost of transportation, although it's, it's a hardship on every Alberta family, that's for sure. Uh, and Jason Kenney's failure to do something there and his failure to stick up uh, for a fight with Ottawa um, is maybe resonating resonating stronger in the rural communities. And again, the discussion page of paper at this time, all Albertans are, are welcome to join in and say what they think. And uh, let's focus on Alberta being the freest, most prosperous place that it can be. Personally, this would work out well for you, though. As you know, you're not going to be running for the UCP next time around. This would provide a new home for you. I mean, there, there's and there's others in the UCP party. So is it just a splintering off of the UCP and a, and a place for you guys to now have a new banner to run under? No, no, it's not that at all. It's about about taking direction from, from my constituents, the 50,000 people that Cypress Medicine had. It's about taking direction and hearing the values and ideas of, of 4.4 million Albertans and, and doing my best to, to listen, to learn, and then lead. Um, you know, I'm grateful that, that I'm in my 10th year. I'm very, very grateful to the people of Cypress Medicine Hat in Alberta for the opportunity to, uh, to represent them. And uh, this is part of it, to, to listen and to learn and to lead. Where do we go from here? Uh, like you say, just a discussion paper issue generated a lot of conversation around the province. Um, what's next? Well, what what next is uh, we're back in session on October 25th, and uh, so it'll be a great chance to talk to my colleagues, uh, you know, my former UCP colleagues, about where they want to go. I've talked to several of my former Wild Rose uh, colleagues and friends across the province to hear their thoughts and ideas on it. Like I say, just in two days, it's, it's in the hundreds of Albertans that have reached out with, with their thoughts and, and their ideas. And uh, then from there, you know, there's there's I'm grateful, too, that there's several smaller political parties that are out there expressing these kind of ideas. I hope that, uh, you know, they'll they'll get involved and they'll tell me what they think. And uh, I, I hope that we can all find a direction that will truly make Alberta the freest and most prosperous place that it should be. Drew, I really appreciate you uh, spending some time with us this morning and giving us a little more clarity about what you're thinking. Thanks so much for joining us. Jay, thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. That is Drew Barnes, who is the MLA for Cyprus Medicine Hat and the guy behind a discussion paper that has a lot of people talking in our province over the past week or so. Uh, basically, what he's saying is, um, you know, we need a rural Alberta party, a party that's based on rural Alberta values. Now, that is the writing that he represents, so that makes sense. Um, to me, and I, and I put the question to Drew, it seems to me we used to come from a, a political time where a leader, one of their main planks of their platform was, I'm a leader for all Canadians, or I'm a leader for all Albertans. Whatever the case may be, even if you don't vote for me, I understand the job. And the job is to represent all Albertans. Um, and I don't know why we would want to go away from that. I think we've got so much division in the province already and in the country already, drawing another line down the middle and saying, hey, if you're a rural voter, you're with us. If you're an urban voter, you're with UCP. I mean, it just, it, it's a yet another way to sort of drive the wedge in and say us versus them. Um, and a lot of you on the text line uh, love this because you don't want a conservative government <laughs> and you think this is a surefire way um, to make sure that this won't happen. Money, money, money. When we talk about health care in this country, that seems to be the prescription for all of our woes. At least the politicians claim it to be, year after year after year. Uh, coming up in a minute, we're going to chat with former Health Minister Jane Philpott about that very concept, how it hasn't worked, and maybe some other avenues we should explore. And of course, uh, Jane Philpott will be remembered by many of you uh, as one of the victims of Justin Trudeau's efforts to handle the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Uh, of course, his Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould was the f- focus when she said she had received a request from the Prime Minister to try and 
you know, alter some things that through the court proceedings. Prime Minister denied those claims, um, but she ended up saying, no, I'm not going to do it, and was booted from caucus, and, and Jane Philbot stood with Jody Wilson-Raybould and was also booted out of caucus, ran as an independent and won, uh, did not run in the last election. Uh, so let's find out what she thinks about healthcare system and the state of government in Canada right now. Um, Ms. Philpott, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, now, I, I don't think we've ever spoken before. So before we get started here, let me just say thank you. I, I, I don't think we have enough politicians who put, um, you know, doing the right thing ahead of partisan politics and their own self-interest. And I, and I really respect that you did that at considerable cost to yourself. Uh, we, we need more of that in our political system, I think. So, so thank you for taking the stand well. that you took. I appreciate the feedback. That's great. Now, you ran as an independent two elections ago. This time you were not up for election. But as you watched as a non-candidate for the first time in a little while, how did you feel about what we went through in our most recent federal election? Well, I think it was a a bit of a frustrating exercise in many ways. Uh, As uh, I indicated in the article that I wrote recently, we ended up with uh, a... uh, a composition of parliament that's pretty much the way we started and of course it cost a lot of money to mm-hmm. run an election so i think there were some frustrations that canadians felt about whether the process was really necessary now you're a doctor now working in a university setting still in 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 medicine um i think we can all agree that historically canada's healthcare system has under delivered and perhaps cost more than it should have i mean it's a tremendous amount of money and we're, we've always said we don't get the results that we should and the pandemic seems to have exasperated that would you agree that our healthcare system has always been a sore spot for what it costs and what we get I think it has always been a sore spot. I mean, of course, there are many things about our about health systems that we're proud of. I mean, we're fa- we're proud of the fact that we're a country where people do get access to health care uh, based on need and not based on their level of affluence. But you're absolutely right that when you look at how much money we spend per person in the country, there are lots of countries in the world that spend less than we do but actually get better health outcomes. So we need to take a serious look at what we could be doing better uh, and get the value for money that that people should expect. Yeah, when you take a look at the politicians' response, it is always more money. Um, uh, All the federal parties were campaigning on that. All the provinces came together and asked for more money from Ottawa. Uh, That seems to be the only solution that they can fall back on. Well, it seems to be the easy answer, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and of course, the, the provinces, you can't blame them in a way. They, they're they spending 40 or 50% of their provincial budgets on health care. Yeah. So they are seeing those cost drivers going up for themselves. And it's the easy time thing to do during an election to say, you know, the feds should be handing over more money. Uh, you know, what the conversation should be directed to is how are we spending the money? Are we spending it on the right things? Are there... Uh, things like uh, access to home care, for example, access to mental health care that don't actually cost all of that much. But if we were a little bit more proactive uh, in and upstream and in, in where we were spending money, we could actually save money in the long run. And the, you're right, the pandemic has shown that better than anything. Yeah, so we just keep pouring money into it. Like you say, it, it's just, well, we'll throw more money at it. We'll throw more, we can be a little more specific with how we're spending that money. Give us some ideas, like you say, home care, uh, mental health care, things like that. You know, you're also involved in, in academia, and we have a great group of researchers here that could really help out, couldn't they? Absolutely. And so I'm I'm delighted that in my post-political career, I've ended up with this wonderful opportunity to be the dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences here at Queen's University. And, and you're right, you know, we need to look to uh, the fact that 
people who are in universities and academics actually have a lot to contribute and and that's what we do is try to do the study that's necessary to determine how we can do better so you know i look for example at uh, one of the groups here that studies health policy and they've looked at things like home care and they've proven that with some relatively inexpensive supports for seniors um, to make sure that they get good nutrition and a bit of exercise and socialization that you can actually keep keep older people out of institutions and we know how expensive it is to provide long-term care and or hospital care so looking to the kinds of solutions that researchers are showing um, would be a a smart thing I think for for, uh, lawmakers to do more often. And you mentioned something in the piece that you put together that I found very interesting like when doctors get together and take a look at you know mapping out um, a treatment protocol for whatever patient they're dealing with there's all kinds of different disciplines that are involved, some of them non-medical at all, you know, modeling, computer programming, all that sort of stuff. We can apply that same sort of principle, you know, approach to, to everything we do in healthcare, can't we? Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we are really focusing on here in our program is what we're calling it radical collaboration. So exactly like you said, it's saying, you know, why don't we not only, you know, work better together as doctors, nurses and other frontline health workers, but you're right, look to the computer programmers who can can help us uh, be able to, to study, you know, how can we actually take machine learning, for example, and, and give us smarter ideas as to who's going to get sick and who isn't going to get sick. Or uh, the example I used in the piece is just the amount of work that can take place um, looking at cancer care, for yeah. example, and, uh, and, and making sure that we're working across the professions to be able to determine what are actually new ways of being able to treat cancer better, more effectively, safer, um, and in a more economical way. So what's the barrier? Why have we not been able to do this? I mean, obviously politicians know throwing more money at it might look good. It's not really going to accomplish anything. Why, why haven't we tried a different approach? Well, I think some of it is that we, you know, um, politicians need to a certain extent to give the public more credit for being able to have nuanced and um, complicated conversations and and you know in a, in the world where sound bites are part of uh, of how people campaign, um, nobody wants to actually have those difficult conversations to say, actually, it's not necessarily about how much money we spend, it's about how we organize ourselves. And and I'm not necessarily promising that I'm going to throw a whole lot more money at this, but I'm going to bring in smart people who are going to help us be able to, to figure out uh, systems that, that run better. So, you know, I hope increasingly that we can sort of say, first of all, let's cut back on the partisanship. That would be one of my Mm-hmm. please and the other would be to say you know as, treat Canadians with the intelligence that they have and the fact that we don't you know that we're willing to have difficult conversations because um, you know the easy answers are not always the best ones. You know we've had talks on the show before about infrastructure and some experts in that field saying you know what it needs to be taken out of the election cycle it needs to be completely removed from partisan politics and it needs to be long-term set up by a you know at length arm's length government agency but it's not subject to the election cycles is there an opportunity to do something like that with healthcare? Well, that happens 
certainly to a significant extent. And I mean, I think our, our health systems in the country are really indebted to the people who do work behind the scenes in a nonpartisan way. Um, you know, people within our ministries of health and that try to and, and regional health authorities that, that try to do a very good job uh, at, at running health systems. And sometimes, it, you know, it becomes too political. And you're right, that's that's not necessarily helpful. Um it probably because it's such a big part of yeah. every budget will always be subject to to uh, to you know the political uh, opportunism that happens at, at the time of election. But you know I think we need to push for and reward politicians who who do speak frankly, who do um, uh, recognize that uh, we've you know that that there's serious work to do and that money is not always the answer. Yeah, excellent. Uh, thanks so much for the conversation this morning. Really insightful. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for reaching out. It's been nice talking to you. Thank you. That is Jane Philpot, who is the former health minister in our country, uh, currently the dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and director of the School of Medicine at Queen's University. And uh, saying some of the things that I like to say on this show all the time, you know what, we need to do the job. We always point our fingers at the politicians and say, well, they're, you know, they're not doing it. They're not doing it. Why? Because we let them, right? And like she says, we need to reward the politicians who won't come out throwing around checks that we know won't necessarily help, but the ones who say, listen, we need to do some hard work here. Uh, It may not be politically expedient. It may not fit into a soundbite. It may not look good, you know, standing with the big novelty check. But it might actually help us. Um, but we just... Uh, some of you get mad when I call politics a game. But it is. And we treat it as a game. And so do the politicians. And the good ones know how to play it well to their benefit to get elected. And be damned to the constituents in a lot of cases. It doesn't matter. Uh, as long as it works to increase their support, that's what they're going to do. Um, they go in with great ideas. And they go in wanting to help. And, they, and, and some of them genuinely do. They still want to. Um, and they still want to work on things. I'm not saying all politicians are bad people and are just craving and trying to get reelected, but that's job one, I believe. Um, and they work as hard as they can once they're there to make things better. But at the same time, constantly over top of it all is allegiance to the party and making sure the party gets reelected. And that's the way that it works. So, like Jane said, you know, it's it comes down to the voters in some place. And, you know, that's not going to work for us anymore. We demand more. I don't know how we go about doing it, but we have to have the conversation. Have you been to London? If you've been to London, England, I would bet both my nickels that you went down to Buckingham Palace and looked at the guards. It's just something you do when you're a tourist in London. You go down for the changing of the guard. Everybody does it because it's pretty cool. Making it even more cool, this month, right now, as we speak, the people standing guard at Buckingham Palace are Canadian soldiers. I'm not making it up. It's a true story. The Royal Regiment of Canadian Artillery officially took up the job of Queen's Guard earlier this month, and they'll stay there until October 22nd. It's a Manitoba-based unit, and they're in charge of of guarding Buckingham Palace, the Tower of London, Windsor Castle, and St. James Palace. And they're also responsible for standing there and not flinching and not reacting, and they have tourists, and they have photo ops, and the whole thing. It's probably one of the most high-profile gigs that you can get when it comes to a guarding job as a member of the military. So how did this happen? Why are Canadians over there? To get the details on that, we're going to chat with Natasha Tersini, who is the public affairs officer with the Royal Regiment of Canadian Artilleries in the United Kingdom. Natasha, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. No problem. Thank you 
so much for having me. So why do we have 90 Canadians over there? What's going on? <laughs> well, we were invited by uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth to come and uh, take part in public duties. This is something that um, the Commonwealth soldiers have been doing uh, for a few decades. And uh, it just strengthens sort of our relationship with the Commonwealth. And the reason why we were picked is because it's the celebration of our 150th anniversary of the founding of A and B batteries for the artillery. So artillery soldiers from across Canada, um, the majority based out of uh, Shiloh, Manitoba, but uh, we do have representation from across Canada are taking part in these uh, to sort of celebrate the foundation of the artillery here in Canada. Very cool. Makes perfect sense. Now, uh, 90 uh, members of the artillery over there. Um, is there training involved? I mean, I imagine there would be, right? There has to be at least a briefing on what you need to do. Yeah, so we started training at the end of, or at the end of June, beginning of July, and we did that in Shiloh. So we brought the entire contingent together, all 90 soldiers, and um, we started basically uh, working on our drill. So in Canada, we do drill, uh, you know, in basic, uh, training and for our change of command ceremonies and things like that, but nothing on this scale. Um, <laughs> you know, the United Kingdom has units that are dedicated just to drill ceremonial. We have one in Canada based in Ottawa, but that's about it. So we started doing all our training. And um, in late August, we in- invited two United Kingdom soldiers from the British Army that came to Shiloh and sort of ran us through our paces and made sure that we were ready for the Queen, uh, to guard the Queen. And then uh, along with them came a master tailor who looked at our uniforms and made sure that our uniforms were up to to snuff, basically. And then we came to the United Kingdom, and on September 27th, we had a fit-for-roll inspection, which basically is where uh, we do our drill and our and our uniforms are checked, and basically we are either granted permission to uh, begin public duties or not, and thank goodness we were granted permission to. It's, it's such a cool gig. I imagine it's a thrill for all of the soldiers who get to go over and do it, but basically you, you're a tourist attraction. That's what this is. I mean, let's, I, I don't know how much guarding is actually involved. Essentially, it is a massive tourist attraction. We know about all the stories, you know, you can't, you can't flinch. You have to stand there. You have to pee your pants if it comes to it. I mean, how, how much of that stuff is really true? Well, I wouldn't say about the, the, the maybe uh, the pants thing, but, um, <laughs> but it is true. We can't flinch. Um, at Buckingham Palace, the, the sentries, as we call the ones at the guard post, are behind the, the fence, so they don't have to sort of deal with, yeah. uh, I know you see on like TV cartoons, you know, things like that, so they don't have to deal with that, but yes, they are on sentry. Uh, they have to stand uh, at a maximum for 15 minutes. It depends um, still, and then they can do a little bit of marching and and then go back to the sentry box, but each sentry are on duty for two hours at a time. Okay. And so, yeah, so yeah, so like you said, it is a very ceremonial role, but yeah, it is very important. And, you know, right now we're the public facing guard of the Queen, so it's, it's just an extremely uh, humbling opportunity. Yeah. And all our soldiers taking part are so proud to be able to represent Canada in this way. And they got to, quote unquote, meet the Queen, right? She came out and did an inspection. <laughs> yes. So she came out to Windsor Castle last 
one thing, I guess not really came out, she lives in Windsor Castle, because she came <laughs> down to the guardroom. It was the first time in the history that she has ever been through that guardroom. So, yeah, she was able to uh, meet our guard contingent at Windsor Castle and some of our senior leadership in the Royal Regiment of Canadian Artillery. And then she presented us the captain sword. Uh, yeah, so she presented us the sword. And that sword will be used to recognize senior office, our officers at the rank of captain, both one reservist and one regular force every year. Now, last question, and it's a dumb one, but I'm curious, and I don't know why. Did you guys already have the hats? Did you have to get the big hats, and do you get to keep the hats? So we don't actually wear the big hats. Oh, really? (laughs) That'd be the funnest part. I know. So those big hats are called bear skins, and um, (laughs) we are wearing our traditional uh, cavalry uniforms because we're cavalry units. Yeah. And so we have forge caps, and we have mesh on our shoulders, and um, our... They're dark blue uniforms, so we don't get to wear those uniforms. But every time we we mount or dismount a guard, uh, and that's when we do the change of the guard yep. ceremony, there will be a unit on there that do have does have the bear skins. So tourists do get to see the bear skins. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's not us. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. But still, an awesome, awesome experience, mm-hmm. Natasha. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. That is Natasha Terracini, who is uh, over there, it sounds like. I I don't know that 100% for certain, but she's the public affairs officer with the Royal Regiment of the Canadian Artilleries in the United Kingdom, which is the unit currently guarding the Queen at Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle and Tower of London. Uh, They'll be there until October 22nd. What an experience. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.